Well, as we begin uh, our sermon this morning, um, we are in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, and uh, again, the theme of the entire series is we must cling to what truly matters. And throughout chapter 6 so far, we have been talking about biblical people should handle things biblically. We've gleaned so far from 1 Corinthians 6 that our belief system should match our life practices. If we're not living what we say we believe, then are we truly believing what we say we believe? And of course, over the past two weeks, we've seen three aspects of our Christian theology or belief system um, that should make an impact in our lives. And specifically in chapter 6, the way we handle conflict with others. We looked at our theology of the church, that we are a family of saints, and, and uh, saints will still, uh, still sometimes struggle with sin, as we'll see this morning as well. And are we handling things like the world, or are we handling things as the family of God? Our theology of the church. Secondly, we looked at our theology of eschatology, of, of things to come. How does, how does what we know is true in the future impact how we're living today? And then last week, we also looked at our theology of humility. Our theology of humility in verses 7 and 8. Do we really perceive that what the world considers a win is actually a loss spiritually? That you can actually win the argument, but lose the battle? Are we walking according to the ways of Christ that we are putting others above ourselves? That we are turning the other cheek, so to speak, when many times we are wronged? And today we're going to look at a final aspect of our theology uh, that should impact our lives and actions uh, and we're going to specifically look this morning at verses 9 to 11. Now this passage, um, Matt read kind of a, a parallel passage to what we're going to talk about today from Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to read verses 9 through 11 in a moment. But this passage, verses 9 to 11, when you're trying to kind of trace what, uh, what's being said, you're trying to trace Paul's argument, sometimes it brings a bit of confusion to us. Regarding how this passage, verses 9 to 11, fits in with what Paul just said about taking believers to court, about handling personal conflicts in verses 1 to 8. And we're going to kind of explain that this morning, but let's start reading in verse 9. We know that Paul's continuing his, his, what, his argument of what he's just said in verses 1 to 8 because it says, or... Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. As we read these three verses, what we have to realize is, as Paul begins chapter 6, he's, he's talking very specifically about an actual issue that is occurring in the local church in Corinth. Uh, just like chapter 5, he was talking very specifically about um, um, a man who was uh, in, in the sin of incest, and, and it needed to be dealt with in the church. Here there were individuals within the church trying to take their brothers to court rather than dealing with the, the issue in a Christian way. 
And then as we come to verses 9 to 11, we see that Paul begins to expand his, th- his focus to give us a lens, a theological lens that from which we are to view not only the issues of verses 1 to 8, and we're going to talk about how it connects, but also what he's going to say, and we're going to look at this after the new year, after we take a little bit of a Christmas break here, uh, in verses 12 uh, and following, this is kind of a transitionary few verses that tie in both with what he has already said, what he is going to say, but not only that, but how we are to view all of life's issues as Christians. So this is going to lead us to our fourth belief system, our fourth aspect of theology that is crucial for us to understand, not only with the mind, but with the heart, what we are to be living out. This morning we are going to look at one and only one aspect of theology. We're going to look at your theology, your belief system regarding regeneration. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, as we come to you in prayer this morning, Lord, thank you as we have sung this morning just beautiful songs. Christ has come. Christ has come. Christ has come for us. Lord, as we see in this passage, this text, Lord, there's not a one of us that can claim that we have the corner on the market, so to speak, of morality, of blamelessness, of of being, according to our own standards, acceptable to You. But Lord, as verse 11 so clearly highlights, Jesus stepped in and He has made us whole. Lord, help us to remember that you have made us whole in the difficulties of life. Lord, help us to remember that you have made us whole when we receive that bad news, when there is that relational conflict in our families or in the church or wherever it may arise. Help us to remember, Lord, that we are yours, we are not our own, to live as we please. Lord, would you open our hearts as we open your word, and Lord, would the Holy Spirit be active in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Your theology of regeneration, you may say, what in the world are you talking about, Pastor Adam? I purposefully let that one simmer for a while without explaining it and just going to prayer. Regeneration... And how many of you remember, if you're in a small group, studying this theological aspect of regeneration in your small group? How many of you remember? Proudly raise your hand. Okay, small group leaders, something's happening. I don't see many hands. Regeneration. Before I give you a short definition, we'll look to Scripture to see what it means. Do you remember Jesus talking to Nicodemus? Nicodemus says, how can I inherit the kingdom of God? Jesus says to him in John 3.3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Regeneration simply means being born again. New life. What was lost is new. What is corruptible is fresh. What is dead, as Matt read in Ephesians chapter 2, is now alive. That's regeneration. Did you know starfish regenerate their little points on their their bodies that make a star? Cut it off. It grows back. It's new. A lizard, you cut off its tail, it regenerates. It grows back. It's a new tail. Same thing spiritually. We must be made new. 
Verse John 3, 3 echoes very fam- uh, familiarly with what we read in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, talking about the kingdom of God, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. One must be born again or he cannot see the kingdom of God. The same concept is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, united to Jesus through his death and resurrection, he is a, what does it say, the underlying words? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He is a new creation. The individual that comes and accepts Christ as Savior is made new. So can I ask you this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you have placed your faith in Jesus and you have turned from your sins and looked to Christ as Lord and Savior, are you living as a new creation today? Does the new life that Jesus has given you, that again, as Ephesians 2 says, we were once dead in our trespasses. And verse 4, but God who is rich in His mercy made us alive. Are you every day of your life remembering that you have been made new and you have been given a new calling? than what you had before salvation. You have been given a different calling than the purposes and priorities that this world pursues, that your co-workers pursue, that your fellow classmates pursue. Paul makes some very pointed statements in verses 9 to 11. The first truth that he brings out very clearly, and it helps us in our belief system regarding this new birth, this new life that Jesus has given us, is first of all that the kingdom of God is only for those born again. In today's uh, message, we are a mess, uh, uh, the message of the day is one of in- inclusivity. Unless you don't conform to that message, then you are not included. You're considered out there. But as long as you conform to the message of this world system, it's really, it doesn't matter what you say, what you believe, what you do, what you feel. Unless you go against what we say, you should believe, think, and feel. The Christian message today is getting less and less acceptable, if it really ever was acceptable, because culture is moving farther and farther away from Scripture. But guess what? That's nothing new, because ever since the first century, Christians would say there is one and only one way into eternal life, into inheriting the kingdom of God, into true life. And we cannot conform to the false gods, the false ways of this world system. And this is a sobering reality. This is a sobering reality for this world, but this is also a sobering reality for us as Christians. In fact, Paul says here in verse 9, Or do you not know that the righteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? I mean, look at that first phrase there. Do you not know? Somewhere along the line, as the Corinthian church is more and more mirroring the ways of this world, there's divisions in the church. They're, they're trying to follow different leaders, uh, just like um, they, uh, the society fagan, uh, favored uh, different pagan philosophers and found pride in that. 
There were divisions. We see here they're treating each other in a way that the world treats each other. They're, trying to, they're, they're going to, to pagan courts. And somewhere along the line, they lost the difference between what it means to be a follower of Christ and what it means to be a follower of this world. What it means to be a participant in the kingdom of God versus what it means to be a participant in the kingdom of this world. And Paul tries to wake them up a little bit and says, don't you know this? In the book of 1 Corinthians, this is a favorite expression of Paul, or do you not know? It's actually used ten times in the book. And this phrase deals with the needed insight that that we as Christians are to have that is to then have a practical outworking in our Christian life. Don't you know this? Because if you knew this, then you would be doing this. How many of you like algebra? See Matt's hand? You remember the if X, then Y type things? And you're trying to figure out the equation? Well, it's almost like that, X and Y. If you knew X, then Y would be the outcome. But you obviously don't know X because Y is not equaling out. That was the most frustrating thing, is not getting the right value systems for those letters in those algebraic equations, right? We've already seen that Paul, even in chapter 6, has repeatedly used this phrase because there was such great inconsistency in this church. Chapter 6 and verse 2 um, he, he says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Verse 3, do you not know that we are to judge even angels? And now we see again in verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? You see, this was a sobering reality. Not only that the kingdom of God is not something that just everybody is a part of, but it's a sober reality that even believers can start to get washed away in the concepts of this world system and lose sight of truth. But not only does the fact that the kingdom of God is only for those who are born again, not only does that give us a sobering reality, but it gives us a wake-up call. I mean, we've got to wake up to this reality. The, the, do you not know that who, the unrighteous, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, here's where verses 9 to 11 really start to, they really tie in with verses 1 to 8, what Paul's talking about, the Christians going to pagan courts. This word unrighteous is the very same word that's used in chapter 1. When you're doing your daily Bible reading um, and and your devotions, it's so important as, as you read through Scripture to pay attention to key words. How do you know what key words are? Uh, many times key words are those words that are repeated in a text. And they're repeated because they're bringing things together. You slowly read to pay attention to the words. In verse 1, he talks about, this is what you're doing, Christians. You are um, daring to go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints. So already, Paul paints a picture that those who are of this world system, they are characterized as the unrighteous, as those who do not have a part in God's kingdom. But not only that, but then when we get to verse 7, Paul uses, and you don't necessarily see this as much in the English as you do in the Greek, but Paul says, why not rather suffer wrong? That word wrong 
is connected, it is, it is in the family of words of unrighteous. Why not rather suffer unrighteousness to be done to you? But what was going on in verse 8? However, you yourselves, and there's that same word, you commit unrighteousness. You wrong and defraud even your own brothers. So in other words, Paul's saying already, okay guys, there's a problem here. You are not living according to what you are saying. You claim to be a believer, but you are actually acting like the unrighteous that have no part in God's kingdom. So where Paul is coming from as he transitions into verses 9 to 11, he says, you are acting unrighteously. Don't you know that those who are unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? So you got to come to grips with something. Either you are not a true follower of Jesus, or you've got to repent and see who you really are and who you are called to be. But one way or the other, this is a wake-up call. They are acting like those who are unbelievers outside the church. They were living for the wrong kingdom. Do you not know that the unrighteous, what, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, when you think of an inheritance, what do you think of? Do you think of that? which you already have. No, you think of an inheritance of something that is going to come. And we know that God's kingdom, that the power of God's kingdom has come. It's come when Jesus came to earth as a babe and he ministered. Uh, And there's that what people say already not yet aspect to God's kingdom, that it has come into this world but yet it's going to fully come when Jesus returns. So we as Christians are still looking ahead at that which is to fully come. But these Christians, if indeed uh, many, uh, some of them Paul may be talking to were not truly Christians, they were seeking an inheritance now. You see, they were not living for that which is to come. They were living for the here and the now. And that was being manifested not in their words, but in their actions. They were pursuing pagan courts. They were defrauding one another to have the riches of this world rather than the glorious riches of God's kingdom. In fact, in chapter 4, In verse 18, verse 19, he says, I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Verse 20, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. You see, one of the evidences that we are living for God's kingdom is not simply our empty talk, what we say, we believe, It is how we are living and how that is impacting our life and those around us. So if you're walking through the course of your day and you're just offending people left and right, and we talked about this last week with with our belief system, our theology of humility. I mean, if we look backwards and and in the, 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 the dust of our trail, we see bodies laying on the ground, so to speak, That's a pretty good indicator that our talk is empty. It's not being manifested in the power of God's kingdom. Paul says, no, those who are seeking to lead you astray, they are very convincing in their talk, but their lives betray them. This should be a wake-up call to us. Are we living for God's kingdom? 
There is a real danger that those who claim the name of Christ, as we see in verse 9, can actually be reflecting the value system of the unrighteous. So not only is this, 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 this concept that the kingdom of God is only for those born again, not only is it a sobering reality to us, not only should it be a wake-up call, but it should be a warning to us. Paul says do, in verse 9, he continues and says, Do not be deceived. Now, if you hear that phrase, uh, what, what should automatically kind of come to your mind? That there's a, war, there's a danger that I can be deceived. Don't touch the stove, you say to your young child. What does that imply? That if you touch the stove, there's a danger there. Paul says a similar thing. Do not be deceived. Whoever sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. Whoever sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap eternal life. Here we see the same concept in 1 Corinthians. And it's both clothed in the danger of being deceived. There are many individuals in our world that claim the label Christian... And because they claim the label Christian, that does not mean that they are truly Christians. Because they can be deceived. And we must not allow ourselves to be deceived. There's a list of sins here, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on this list. Um, but but um, I, I do want to, to briefly kind of talk about some of these things. And, and in chapter 5 that Dennis already preached in, uh, on, there's a similar list uh, in verses 9 through 11 uh, dealing with both unbelievers and those who called themselves believers. And, and again, this list once again ties together what Paul has said both in chapter 5 and, and already in chapter 6. Uh, there are four new items that, that Paul adds to this list. But these are the characteristics of, of unbelievers. Uh, Paul says, do not be deceived. Here's the warning that we need to heed. He says, uh, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And, and he gets more specific. What does that unrighteousness look like? He says, neither the sexually immoral... And right away, what does this do? This reminds us of chapter 5. The sexually immoral person that needed to be, um, the church needed to deal with and put them outside of the church and hope that if they're true believers, they would repent and they'd be restored. The sexually immoral. This word actually is, is the word that we get pornography from. And while Paul, no doubt, because of what he just said in chapter 5, uh, uh, probably has that in his mind at the uh, uh, first and foremost, the, the issue they were dealing with of incest in chapter 5, sexual immorality involves much more than just the physical act. It involves, as Jesus said, the thought life. It involves where we go on the internet. It involves how we are conducting ourselves morally. That those who are sexually immoral, this is actually a characteristic of the, uh, to be a characteristic of, of those who are outside of Christ, not those who are in Christ. And then he says, idolaters. Those who in the first century, very literally, would worship false idols. In fact, we'll see in chapter 10 that very often, idolatry and sexual immorality were seen together. That where there was idolatry, there was also sexual immorality that would go on in idolatrous practices. How many times today do we bow down to the idol of self, the idol of, of sports, the idol of all of these other things that we, are, we all struggle with. And then he says next, adult, uh, adulterers. Again, very similar to sexual immorality, yet more specific, those who 
are involved in a relationship outside of marriage. Then he says, nor men who practice homosexuality. Of course, this, invo- this deals with men or women, but in the first century, uh, specifically Paul is talking about men because that is where homosexuality would be more pronounced. Uh, this word, um, some of your versions may, may read it differently, describing that it's actually two words that... that um, the ESV puts together homosexuality, those who are both active and passive in that physical act. And boy, this is culturally inappropriate, isn't it? To, 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 to make a statement like that. And, and different um, individuals will even try to use the Bible to say, well, Paul's kind of talking about temple prostitution that was happening in the first century, but he's not really talking about a committed homosexual relationship. And they're trying to twist the Scriptures, and that's just, we read uh, throughout the Scriptures, that that's just not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says, acting the act, you see, the practice of homosexuality is a sin. It's wrong. You know what's not a sin? Someone who struggles with homosexuality. Someone who very much says, man, as far back as I can remember, I have had these tendencies and I've struggled in these areas and it's a temptation to me. Listen, that is not a sin. No more than it is a temptation uh, for, to get on the internet, to go somewhere you shouldn't, or to be eating too much, or to do any of those things. The issue may be, it's more complex, it's harder to deal with many times. But listen, there are many committed Christians who struggle with these things and they say, you know what, I know what God's Word says. And I am going to act in faith to God's Word and not act according to my feelings. That's the way we should be living as Christians. The world says, no, be who you really are. Man, act upon who you really are because that's when you're going to be your true self. Listen, if we're going to be our true selves and we have a biblical perspective, I mean, Matt read it in Ephesians 2. What kind of people are we going to be? You know, we can be who we are if we have been born again. That, listen, I was once dead in my sins, pursuing my own selfish ends. But now I live for a different master. I don't live for self, I live for Christ. And I am going to follow His Word. And it may be that one of the crosses that Christ is calling me to carry could be that I struggle with homosexuality. That that may be, you know, that's not a taboo topic anymore. Christians can struggle with that, and that's not a sin. It is a sin when we give ourselves to that. Does that make sense? So we see here that he goes on in verse 10. He says, nor thieves. He also adds, um, nor the greedy. These two things go hand in hand, don't they? What does greediness often produce? Thievery. I mean, what we're dealing here, the heart of the matter is a heart of covetousness. I mean, the tenth commandment that God gave Israel, do not covet. You know what he ends with? All of these proceed from the heart, like Jesus said. But do not covet. That pricks to the very foundations of the heart because we are covetous people. How many of you this morning, you don't have to raise your hand, how many of you struggled with a covetous thought this morning? I mean, how many of you kind of look around and you say, man, I wish I was more like that person. I wish what they, I had what they had. 
wish I had the car they have. I wish I had the life they have. Man, I'd be in so much of a better place if I got the breaks that that person got. Neither the thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards. This isn't talking about a prohibition against alcohol. It's talking about the control of alcohol that brings drunkenness. Nor revilers. This is one who slanders with their mouth. One who is violent with their words. How many of you, man, you have had someone tear into you and it felt figuratively as painful as a punch to the jaw? Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Yeah, right. If that's the case, then you don't have people having to work through issues 30 years later because of things their parents told them when they were kids. Those who slander. My, oh my, how we have to be careful with our words. And then he, en- he ends, not that this is an all- all-encompassing list that Paul is mentioning everything under the sun, but he's giving kind of categorical issues. Uh, and we see that, 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 that this church was dealing with sexual immorality. I mean, going to, to, to court cases, you see covetousness with, with the thievery, greed, um, reviling, and then swindlers. This is a swindler is like a thief. They are a thief, but they, they steal very specifically. They steal by cheating people without their even knowing it through scams, through their words, through whatever it is. What does the Bible say? They will not inherit the kingdom of God. You see, these people that are characterized by these sins, they are, not, they are living for immediate gain not an eternal inheritance. Does that make sense? Inherit has to do with something that is yet to come. And what does indulging in these sins mean? That you are living for the present moment and the fleeting gratification that these things will give you. And as we know, when we give ourselves to these things, We dig ourselves deeper and deeper into sin because sin does not satisfy. It's always the next thing. Now, lest there be confusion, we're going to talk about this in our last verse. Um, Lest there be confusion. Let me say with each one of these items that, that Paul lists, the issue is not that Christians do not struggle with these sins. So you may say, I struggle with covetousness. I struggle with my thoughts. All of the... It is not that Paul is saying that the Christian struggle is is indicative that you are not a believer But what it is saying is that those that give themselves over to these sins have to really ask, are they believers? Those that give themselves to these sins, there is no sign of conviction, remorse, repentance. That is an indicator that they may not be a citizen of the kingdom of God. Now, where is the hope of the gospel? All of the sudden, in the midst of this heavy list, and it's kind of like, whoa. I mean, I told you this with Ephesians 5 when it talks about the works of the flesh, but then it gets to the works of the spirit. It's almost like a breath of fresh air. It's almost like, 
That's what verse 11 is. I mean, you're reading this out loud, and it's like verse 11, this hope fills the room. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. You see, our theology of regeneration, it needs to include that we need to realize those that the kingdom of God is, is only for those born again. And we cannot water that down in other people's lives or our own life. But secondly, we have been, I'm not sure if this is even a word, but I put it up there anyway. You ready? Let's go to that next point. We have been rebirthed to something much different than what verses 9 and 10 talk about. Is rebirth the word? Anybody know? I mean, you'd much more easily put we have been reborn, but I wanted to, to really emphasize to you today that it's not ourselves that have made us be reborn. It's like Nicodemus says, can I crawl back into my mother a second time and make myself be re reborn? And God says, no, it is the work, Jesus says, it is the work of the Spirit. He is the one that has rebirthed, made us be reborn. And this is to something so much greater, something so much different than verses 9 and 10, something that satisfies so much more. What is it? The hope of the gospel. Such were some of you. The hope of the gospel. We sang, O come all you unfaithful. None of us can claim to have arrived. Many of us look back on our past and there are so many regrets and mistakes. And many of you can say, I have tasted the way of the world. I have indulged in the way of the world. And I can say firsthand it does not satisfy And regardless of where we're at, even if we were saved at a very young age, we can equally claim the same miracle of being reborn from my sin happened no matter I was 5 or 55. You see, Jesus saves us, just like we read about the incarnation, about Jesus becoming flesh, just as Jesus came to where we were at to rescue us, to die on the cross. So, God comes to where we are at in our sin and He rescues us. He saves us by the power of the Spirit. But guess what? He doesn't leave us there. Such were some of you. In other words, Paul says, listen, you don't have bragging rights to look down on those who are characterized in verses 9 and 10 because it's but by the grace of God that either you are not captivated to these sins or you've been rescued from them. You don't have bragging rights. But you do need to take these things seriously. And those that claim Christ... cannot be just looked as acceptable when they've given themselves over to these things. Such were some of you. But then he gives a contrastive list to what he's just said in verses 9 and 10, and I like this list much better. Verses 9 and 10 is all about the person, all of the messes, all of the sins that we can get intertwined in. But man, verse 11 is all about Jesus. It's all about what he did for us. We see from verses 9 and 10 what we can do for ourselves. But verse 11 is what only God can do for us. That's the hope of the gospel. That's the hope of Christmas. What is this contrastive list? But you were washed. 
Titus 3.5 says, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but in, according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. We have been cleansed from our sins through the Holy Spirit. And the washing of baptism is a visible picture of what the Holy Spirit did in saving us and washing away our sins. Not only that, but he says you were sanctified. In other words, you were set apart from this world to God. You remember how Paul opened up chapter 6? He says that these believers, they were going to the unrighteous instead of who? The saints. Same word. The ones who have been sanctified. He opens up the book of 1 Corinthians and he says, I'm writing this to you as saints. We have been set apart to God to live for Him. Not according to the things we see in verses 9 and 10. And then thirdly, he says, you have been justified. That word justified, it means you've been declared righteous by God. Not because of anything you've done, but because of what Jesus has done for you. Romans 5.1 says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine having peace with a perfect, holy judge? If it was based upon your own merits. But man, we can look to a holy, perfect God as Father because He sent His Son to rescue us and bring us into His family. Oh my goodness. You see, this was a divine work. It wasn't done by ourselves or through ourselves. It says... All of this happened in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It was because of the works of Jesus and it was because the Holy Spirit came, cleansed us, set us apart, and through that application of the perfect life and death of Jesus, we've been declared righteous. This was all according to the Godhead, the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We have no bragging rights here. So as we close and time is up, I want to give you an application, two application points and we'll be done. Number one, a Christian's life must be tethered to the gospel. You may say, what do you mean tethered to the gospel? How many, uh, you play tetherball before? How fun would tetherball be if there wasn't that little rope connecting the ball to the pole? Would it be that fun? No, you just hit it and it would go. So it is in our Christian life if we are not tethered to the reality of the work of Jesus on our behalf. When we are tethered to the gospel, when it becomes a part of our normal thinking process, when it guides our decisions, when it guides our priorities, when it guides our purpose, we begin to really not only sense but live out the new identity that we have because of our union to Jesus. When our lives are tethered to the gospel, It makes a difference in our lifestyle and in our worldview. When our lives are tethered to the gospel, it brings a conviction of sin. It brings repentance in our lives because how could we ever want something that would ever be greater than what Jesus has given us? When our lives are tethered to the gospel, our purposes and goals in life look different. Is your life tethered to the gospel? And then secondly, while fixated introspection is not healthy, proper self-examination is important. 
Many individuals who sometimes struggle, am I saved? Uh, you know, I struggle with that. One day I feel saved, the next day I don't. You know, they're looking at the wrong thing. They're looking at themselves and, and not what Jesus has done. And sometimes seeing lists like this can just further those doubts. And that is not what Paul means to do because even having those doubts generally means that that person is sensitive to the Holy Spirit in their life and sensitive to the Scriptures. So while we should not be morbidly and just fixated on ourselves, a proper self-examination is important in the Christian life. As a Christian, am I allowing some of these things to hold sway? Or do I claim to be a Christian and, and I have no desire to follow Him? And this is the way I want to go. And, and, and many times the people Paul's talking to, they don't even realize this warning is for, for them because they could care less. But self-examination is important in the Christian life, but... If you struggle with things like, am I really saved? And it's something that's, it's not a one-time thing. This is like every day. Remember, your eyes are to be on Jesus, as verse 11 tells us, in the midst of knowing that verses 9 and 10 can also be true in certain individuals' lives. Jesus is our hope. We must cling to what truly matters. So the term regeneration, it's much more than a big theological term. It is a truth that we are either living out of each and every day of our lives or that we are forgetful of. And the danger is to be swept away according to the thoughts and priorities and thinking of this culture. Thank you.